You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Organisms that are goal-driven in their behavior and their perception in every single experiment that's ever been done drive to extinction the organisms that see reality as it is. Because reality is too complex. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. Because if you start defining people as evil, then you've now taken away any opportunity you had of changing them. Like you have to engage with them forcefully. Once you define people as being evil, you have to destroy them. So if you turn that around, if you want to negotiate with somebody and you want to, for example, believe that you can change their mind, then you can't go around defining them as evil. You can't do that. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm pleased to welcome Ben Kimura-Gross as my guest. One fitness feature that drives human behavior that's only recently really come to light. And it's crazy because this could be the one feature that drives survival more powerfully than any other fitness feature. Ben is the CEO of Systemics Academy and a negotiation trainer and mentor. If you want to kill a negotiation, walk in with a sense of moral superiority. Do that and you'll kill the negotiation because human beings do not function on that purely logical level. We just don't. At negotiation with Goliath, Ben trains sustainability professionals and entrepreneurs to get decision makers on their side and make your goals their goals. Today is the big day. The UN Water Conference is kicking off. Since last weekend, many side events also start gathering attention in New York. The finest water mines meet with powerful decision makers. But do they meet as equals? Or are the ones quite weaker than the others when it comes to getting their points across and finding common ground in negotiation? Negotiating with high-end decision makers can be a stretch for water professionals. After all, we're primarily engineers for a reason. We firmly believe that the good guys will win and we trust the perfect universe to do his work. Spoiler alert, things don't work that way. For an entire set of reasons, Ben will detail in a minute, which ranges from tactics to techniques through evolution and nature's law. But nothing prevents us from winning that game. We just have to adopt the right approaches and train a bit. This is why I thought it might be the right kick to have Ben boost us, especially today, as the serious game starts in New York. And let's be honest, these skills could be of great use every day, including far away from the UN headquarters. I'll let you dive into Ben's sharing in a second. Let me just remind you before that, that if you like what you hear, please take that episode and share it with a colleague, a friend, your boss or your LinkedIn network. Nothing beats a good recommendation, so please do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the show. Hi, Antoine. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have that conversation with you because you're touching on a topic which we have never discussed on that microphone. I was really impressed by your writing skills. So now I'm looking forward to okay. discover your, your talking skills. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll dig into that in, in just a minute. But all that starts mm -hmm. with a good tradition I have on that microphone, which is to ask you to send me a postcard 
And actually, your postcard today comes from Tokyo. So what can you tell me about Tokyo, which I would ignore by now? Well, as you probably know, Tokyo is a, has a greater metropolitan area of like 36 million people. So it's huge. And then you have to imagine all of these 36 million people are wearing masks all the time, everywhere they go. Now, that's something that surprised me because in Berlin, people are like, eh, whatever. You know, but I've seen people walking down the streets at night wearing masks where there's like 10 meters around them. Nobody. I've seen a guy sitting in a car on his own, all alone, wearing a mask. Like it's a social grace, I think, by now. You mentioned Berlin and Tokyo. And if I'm right, you're traveling a bit between those two cities. So where do you feel at home? Is it in both cities? I would have to say both. Yeah. I grew up in Berlin, my hometown, kind of. But I spent a very significant and important part of my life in Tokyo, and I now have family in Tokyo. So that's also home. You know, I feel so guilty every time I fly. It's horrible. And I try to do less of it. That's why it makes sense for me to be spending like this time we're in Tokyo for two months. You're somehow going into the topic in the sense that you have a strong involvement with green tech and sustainability, but with a very different angle compared to whatever we've been discussing so far on that microphone. Maybe to start with, I'd like to understand from you, what is the Aikido? of tough conversations. Okay, so first of all, one of the basic tenets of Aikido is to never meet aggression with aggression. Your counterpart might be more powerful than you are. And I think that's the case in lots of, you know, let's say you're a green tech startup and you're talking to somebody in the power production industry or something like that. So you're facing stronger counterparts. And how do you meet that overwhelming physical power? How do you meet that calmly with smarts and superior techniques? That's Aikido. In conversations, it means compassion. It means knowing exactly how to ask questions that steer people's thinking in the direction you want them to go. And it means being absolutely clear on your strategic goals, unwaveringly clear. That's a good summary. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how you came up with the concept in the sense you mentioned green tech, you mentioned negotiation. I think those will be keywords for a conversation today. And I'm wondering what made you think first, you need to do something and that's fear. And second, that is really one of the skills which green tech entrepreneurs shall really develop. I'll start with the first part, right? How did I even get into this sphere, right? Which is I've been training, you know, as a communications trainer, I've been working for over 10 years, working a lot for, I'd say, pharma, IT, some news media corporations and the government. And the reason I switched away from those clients is because I had the bull pulled from my eyes. You know, I always thought I was doing my bit in sustainability, not owning or driving a car, not using plastic bags, all those little things that people think are quite important. And they're, they are important. And I thought that was enough. But the moment I started looking into what my friends were doing, my friends in green tech, who I've been talking to more and more over, let's say, the last 18 months. And the more I started looking into COP26 reporting and then the IPCC reports coming out around that time, I was just like, you know, this is overwhelming. I got to do more. Those little things that we all do, it's not enough. You know, if we all want to make it through this, we all have to do more, but how? And that's really what got me into the whole sustainability field is people in green tech making me aware that I need to take a more active part and really saying, I don't want to say pointing a gun at my chest, but that's what we say in German, <laughs> you know, but asking very direct questions like, you know, do you really want to work for a news media organization that's publicly aggressing against Greta Thunberg? Or do you want to work for people pushing for change that's going to ensure the continued well-being of human society? What's it going to be? And that pushed a button and that kind of got me to realize I can't just keep going the way I'm going. I need to refocus. You felt that need to refocus. So yeah. that explains the switch to the green tech side of things. But mm -hmm. what I'd like to understand is 
what made you think that what they were missing the most and where you could help the better was with these persuasion and negotiation skills? People in sustainability are pushing for change, right? And one of the greatest hurdles standing in the way of change is overwhelmingly powerful individuals and organizations that are change resistant. Let's just call them that. I sometimes, I like to call them Goliaths, right? And that's why I call my whole thing negotiating with Goliaths. When I got more involved in you know, trying to understand what people in sustainability and green tech were doing, I was really shocked when I understood that this balance of negotiating power between the sustainability sector on the one side and the Goliaths on the other. Don't get me wrong. There are some amazingly capable negotiators in green tech and sustainability, and I know some of them, and I totally respect them. But what you have to understand is that the negotiating power of the Goliaths has decades of experience, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment built into it. So on average, your typical green tech startup is not on equal footing with that. Looking at this power disbalance, that's where the Aikido moves come in handy. Actually, the reason why I was really excited to have the discussion with you and the reason why that topic matters a lot, I think, is that from the 130 guests I had so far on that microphone, I would say mm -hmm. 75% of them mentioned how we are living in a conservative industry. We don't evolve as fast as the world is evolving. And we always have a hard time to put a finger on why change is so slow. Mm -hmm. And I thought that you're bringing here a new angle, which is maybe <laughs> we're not convincing enough. And maybe we don't use the right skill sets to be convincing enough. So mm -hmm. what I'd like to get from you is to get some starts of directions as to how to get a bit better at negotiating, at persuading our interlocutors to do the right move and to probably find win-wins on the way. Mm -hmm. Not that you can do a masterclass in such a short time, but maybe to start mm -hmm. a fire, you need a bit of lightning at the beginning to, to start to realize. Mm -hmm. You mentioned how you've seen good negotiators in that scene of green tech. And I was wondering, mm -hmm. to be very blunt, if you have seen also very terrible and very bad negotiators. Not just in green tech. I mean, in every kind of field and even in extremely successful companies, right, or other kinds of organizations, there are always amazingly good negotiators and there's horrible negotiators. There are negotiators who achieve great results because of the power of the company behind them, even though they themselves aren't really good negotiators. And how is that different from sales skills? In sales, you're trying to convince somebody to buy something, and then also often you're dealing with bargaining, right? And these are two very small components of negotiating skills. That's like a sub-skill. What more do you have in negotiations? It's such a broad field, you know, but I'll just give you a few. One type of skill that I'd say is also closely linked to conflict resolution is to overcome the hurdles that you face as you're trying to cooperate. These may be just because you see the world in different ways or you have different sets of interests that you need to somehow align. Overcoming hurdles to cooperation is a huge part of negotiation, I think. Then building coalitions, stakeholder management, getting people to even understand the nature of a problem, which has been a real biggie in climate change issues, right? Because scientists think that they can help people and even the powerful people running huge organizations or large corporations, scientists have been thinking that they can get people to see this problem by talking about facts and figures. And of course they can't. It's not the way it works. And is there a difference between negotiation and manipulation? Absolutely. Absolutely. First, I think we should take apart this word manipulation, right? Because it gets a bad rap. Even though we're all trying to achieve goals, we're all trying to convince people to do the things that we think are important and stuff like that. And most human beings go through their day manipulating, not negatively, not evilly or something like that. But that's just part of who we are. We influence each other. This is part of how human societies work. 
And so is there a difference between negotiating and manipulating? I'd say that the core of negotiating is that you've got two people who've got a common goal. And sometimes, yes, there's more parties involved, right? There's multi-party negotiations, but let's just focus on two people. You've got two people who've got a shared goal that they want to achieve. And in order to achieve it, they need to cooperate. And they're trying to define how they're going to cooperate to achieve that common shared goal. If you don't have a shared goal, you don't need to negotiate. How do you figure so, out if you have a shared goal? Shared goals come through desires. For example, having a wonderful relationship with my wife and building that wonderful relationship. That's a shared goal based on a desire to just live a good life. But shared goals can also come through external forces. Obviously, at COP27, there are shared goals there. For example, let's just take my home country, Germany, not because Germany says, oh, you know what? We've been blowing so much carbon into the air, way more than Fiji, and we should support Fiji in facing the increased amounts of climate disasters that they're facing right now because of the carbon that we've been blowing into the air. I don't think that any nation wants to hand out money, but there's an international pressure building and there's even societal pressure building from within Germany amongst the people who are aware of the problems that Germany's actions and the CO2 that is blown into the air are causing. Sometimes common goals come about because we have to go somewhere. So you have to be able to deal with that. So is it safe to assume that if you're in green tech and sustainability, there will always be a shared goal? unless you're really negotiating with the devil or someone who wants to destroy the planet on purpose. Can I just pick up on this, you know, devil or wants to destroy sure. the planet on purpose? Sure. Right? Because I think that's such a big topic that some counterparts are really tough. And you would think that maybe they're bent on destruction. They don't care. And then you ask yourself, well, but wait, why are they so self-destructive? Because they must see that they are also destroying their own life habitats alongside with the habitat for millions and billions of people, as well as animals, plants, all life on Earth, etc., right? Can't they see how extremely destructive that is? Can't they see what they're doing? And are they like evil? And I'm not into the good and evil thing because it doesn't help us. Because if you start defining people as evil, then you've now taken away any opportunity you had of changing them. You have to engage with them forcefully. Once you define people as being evil, you have to destroy them. So if you turn that around, if you want to negotiate with somebody and you want to, for example, believe that you can change their mind, then you can't go around defining them as evil. You can't do that. But what do you do, right? And this is where I find the topic. And I know this is very scientific and some people, you know, they're like, ah, don't get into that deep science stuff, you know, <laughs> I have to be careful, right? But where I find the topic of behavioral physiology really important. The things that we can say about the nature of how our bodies and brains and nervous systems and our perceptive apparatuses like sight and hearing, etc., how all that is built and what that does to influence our behavior, how we see the world, how we make important decisions, etc., and, of course, how it influences the behavior of the people in the oil and gas industry, for example, who you might think, oh my God, they're just hell-bent on destruction. But I would argue they're not. And to understand why they actually the world in a way that they presume is constructive and helpful, and you're finding it really difficult to negotiate or to actually get them to see your reality as a sustainability leader, why that's happening. If you want to understand that, I don't know how much time we got. This might be a little bit of a detour, but to understand that, you have to get into the topic of extinction. I'm not talking about the doomist kind of, we're all going to die extinction. I'm talking about extinction as a natural process. 
As a natural process, extinction is basically about the power of one species or maybe even a subgroup of species to survive. And by surviving and by getting very good at surviving, they drive other groups into extinction. So that's a, just a natural process. It happens all the time. It's happening right now. And as humans, we're also part of the animal kingdom. So we're part of this competition for survival. And lots of people, when I start talking about this, they say, yeah, okay, Darwin, I know about this, survival of the fittest, right? What's new? And what's new is that there's thousands of different kinds of fitness features, which most of them, most people don't know about. And there's one fitness feature that drives human behavior that's only recently really come to light. And it's crazy because this could be the one feature that drives survival more powerfully than any other fitness feature. And it's certainly the fitness feature that's driving the behavior of that oil and gas CEO, right? Let's imagine some person who's behaving completely irrationally and you're thinking, oh my God, this guy's hell-bent on destruction. Failing to understand this fitness feature that drives this guy's behavior makes every discussion and every negotiation, every attempt you have make at persuading this oil and gas CEO, it makes every attempt at persuading him to come on board, like smacking your face against a brick wall. What's the Running feature? <laughs> at a brick wall, full speed, unprotected, trying to break it down with the tip of your nose. And so exactly right now you're going, okay, what's this feature, right? All right. Have you ever heard of the Australian jewel beetle? No. Nope. <laughs> okay. Sorry, but you know, to understand the feature, you need to understand this weird thing that the Australian jewel beetle does, okay? Which it's in the outback, right? And it finds itself a beer bottle and it starts humping it as if it was going to make some babies. Now, why would the Australian jewel beetle hump a beer bottle? It's so weird, right? And the truth is that there's a certain kind of beer bottle that has like a pattern and in the right kind of light with the right kind of reflection, it looks like the rump of a female Australian jewel beetle. And so the male Australian jewel beetle can't tell the difference. And now you think, oh, that's stupid. I mean, they look nothing alike. But the truth is, the Australian jewel beetle doesn't see reality as it is. It sees reality through the lens of looking for certain kinds of patterns. So just looking for certain kinds of patterns of light, patterns of color, that's all it knows. So its reality perception is really limited. And as Donald Huffman, a really amazing researcher, explained in his TED Talk, I think is about five years ago, about the nature that we as humans perceive reality. In fact, all organisms perceive reality. We all perceive reality through the lens of certain kinds of patterns that we understand to either help us or hinder us in achieving our goals. So reality perception and our whole construct in our brains of how the world works and all that kind of stuff is goal-driven. I understand that this gets a bit abstract, right? But what does this lead to? In everybody's mind, reality is a construct. It's not a reflection of the way things are. It's a construct. And the other sad thing about it is that we just have to deal with, right? And that scientists who are trying to convince, for example, people in the oil and gas industry like Peter Kamas and other you know, amazing people who are pushing for this change that's really necessary, we have to understand the behavioral realities of what's going on there, which is organisms that are goal-driven in their behavior and their perception in every single experiment that's ever been done drive to extinction the organisms that see reality as it is, because reality is too complex. So this explains why CEOs who don't see reality as it is in all its complexity, but who look like they're wearing shutters, they're very successful because they're at the top of the fitness game. And Th I think we have to accept this. 
we have to accept this because this is a reality of human perception. I don't want to accept it, right? It's not fun to say like, oh my God, so many people don't see the world the way it is and they're powerful and, and they're maybe deluded and they're definitely wearing shutters. But we have to accept that if we want to move forward. That's a bit the root of the psychological bias. If we were to be free of psychological bias, we would have a hard time to process all that amount of information out there. And so mm -hmm. the psychological mm -hmm. bias is a way our brains have put together to help us mm -hmm. mitigate and navigate a world which is very complex. So this reality which we define as being too complex to be understood. But, and the sad thing, and I think this is a real point, is that who wins, right? So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with this huge disadvantage that we've got is biased against the scientist, really? I think the only way to deal with that is to say, okay, let's accept the way that human perception works. Let's accept that evolution is a powerful thing. It's been created in this way, you know, for millions or maybe even billions of years. Let's accept that cognition is goal-driven and not reality-driven. The very way that people perceive reality is limited in its ability to see reality for what it is, and it's ultimately super strong goal-driven. If you accept that, then you start handling negotiations in a different way. You start handling that seeming evil, destructive person in a completely different way. Because now you're not looking at a moral wrong. You're looking at a natural phenomenon of evolution. All you say makes a ton of sense. I'm wondering where to start with that. Because you've explained how you cannot win the argument with facts and figures, which makes sense if you're now appealing to emotions and patterns and bias. And you've mentioned how this moral high ground doesn't help either, because then you're not looking at your counterpart as someone which you have to understand and to accept his reality and to try to then find a common ground with it mm. within that reality or to open him to a new reality. But if now I'm one of these green tech sustainable entrepreneurs and, and I'd like to change the mm. word for good, what is the very first step I have to undergo? Where would you advise to start? Compassion. Yeah. Because that's the antidote to righteous anger. It's the antidote to trying to take the moral high ground. And about the moral high ground issue, you actually read my ebook, right? Yes. So do you remember that story about the moral high ground? What is the thing that moral high ground does to your face when you take the moral high ground? You, you look with disdain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So actually, the facial expressions that people who see others as morally corrupt, the facial expression that appears on their face is the same facial expression as with physical disgust. This has to do with how our brains are wired and how moral disgust and physical disgust are closely linked. So you know that feeling when you walk around in the garden when you were a kid with your barefoot and right, and you step on something weird, like maybe a slug. That feeling. You just go, ah. When you experience moral disgust towards the person you're talking to, what's showing on your face is that same kind of expression, as if you stepped on this slug. And now imagine somebody looking at you like that. How does that make you feel? Obviously bad. Horrible. <laughs> Horrible. In fact, it's so horrible that people who look at each other, right, who have in a conversation, a certain percentage of these kinds of facial expressions that show disgust, 95% of the time, that leads to irreparable damage to the relationship, meaning they don't want to have anything to do with you. If you want to kill a negotiation, walk in with a sense of moral superiority. Do that and you'll kill the negotiation because human beings do not function on that purely logical level. We just don't. The, the emotional triggers created by showing that disgust on your face are just so strong. You mentioned it as a killer. And in your ebook, you have seven 
of those stories. And mm -hmm. if I remember right, in the one you're mentioning, the solution is that the person doesn't correct what she was doing. She just gets a chance to have a new start in a different place. And she does it all better the second time. But mm -hmm. would that mean that really it's a killer? If you enter and you once have this superiority on your face, then it's done. If you don't get a chance mm -hmm. to restart new somewhere else, then that battle is lost forever. It's really difficult to fix that one. Once you've gone down that route, it's really difficult to fix. And sometimes, in some situations, there are external factors which push you that you have to deal with that person and then you can try to fix your relationship. But Again, you have to realize at that point, you're not even talking about trying to have a good negotiation. You have to go back to fixing the relationship. People underestimate how much it is a killer. You mentioned compassion to be the place to start with, which resonates with personally the story I preferred among your seven stories, which I could rely the most on, which is explaining how listening is the first and best skill. Best is now my personal interpretation, but to me that starts mm -hmm. with listening because that's the way you understand someone. So that would be my favorite one among the seven. I was wondering if you have a favorite one as well or one which you would deem to be more efficient. It's actually my favorite too. Listening is, I'd say, the number one skill that is underestimated and at which people don't perform very well, especially in negotiations where you go in with a certain set of attitudes, certain set of goals, et cetera, et cetera. You want to push your points. And if that's your attitude, then you're not going to get the best out of the negotiation. It's a tough one, though, because I remember discussing that with Liai Moberstek on that microphone. And she demonstrated how listening can be tough in the sense that if you finish your sentence and straight after your sentence, I already have a question. That means I have not listened and processed to the end of what you were saying. And so she demonstrated that by saying, if I really want to process what you're saying, I need to stop and wait for at least two seconds and then come back with the next thing. But we as humans have a really hard time with this two seconds of silence where, in fact, mm -hmm. it is listening, but it is also very uncomfortable. I could see that as a hard-to-apply tool if you want to put it in practice. Yeah, I think also the same goes in negotiations, right? I think in negotiations, there's times when you have to have fast pacing and there's times where silence can actually help you slow down the pace. And I'd say that if your counterpart kind of depends on working with you on some level, silence can be totally fine. I mean, you can even use silence to great effect in situations where you ask a critical question and then you just shut up and you wait for them to answer it. That's your fair story. How to reverse the pressure by just mm -hmm. hear or something your interlocutor is saying and then just stop talking yeah. and wait yeah. for him to come back. Yeah, yeah. The one where somebody's offered a very unfair deal, but the person who's offering the deal is saying, I'm just trying to be fair here. Right. And then what do you say? Well, the best thing you can say is hang, hang <laughs> there. Yeah, just let it hang there. You know, <laughs> if they resist and they just leave the silence hanging there and, you know, they kind of out silence you, then you can still always take one further step and say, got the feeling you're really convinced that this is a really fair deal. So I'm sure you got the facts and figures to back it up. Or I'm sure you can explain that to me, how it's fair. And again, it's so important to not ask that in a kind of aggressive way. You mentioned at the very beginning of that conversation how all of that sounds like Aikido. Aikido is something which I never practiced Aikido. I had one of my music teacher who was an Aikido instructor. So that's what I know about Aikido. So I'm going to say things which are more stupid than me. So please don't be offended. But I would see that as something you have to practice and repeat mm -hmm. until you create the patterns we were discussing before. When I read your ebook and when I see your full argumentation, Every time at the end of the story, I was like, oh, yes, that makes a lot of sense. And that sounds like really the sensitive way to do it. But then if I'm honest and I'm putting myself in the shoes of the person at the beginning of the story, I would never behave that way because 
it wouldn't cross my mind or I wouldn't elaborate enough or be clever enough in the instant to come up mm -hmm. with the right tactics. How much do you have to train and practice so that you always come back with, if not the best, at least a good line? First of all, I'd say that the thing that people need to train most is not actually coming back with good lines. That's kind of the last bit. I think the thing that people need to train most is, first of all, the listening skills. Another really important thing that people have to train is compassion, not to be triggered into saying things that go against their own strategy. Because a good negotiator will manipulate you into behaviors that actually generate good results for them, but results that aren't beneficial to you. Some of the most important reflexes you have to learn to control is the reflexes that are already built in. And then with regard to being able to come back with a good line or something, I always say the best lines are probably not lines, they're questions. It's good to have the patience to endure the silence. And even if it means like, for example, you're thinking on what to say next, to create those pauses that allow you to figure out what to say. That's also a little trick. I have one negotiator friend who everybody would say, like, this guy must have like a really small bladder. What's wrong with him? He's always going to the toilet. He's going to the toilet for a very simple reason. Because he's like, oh my God, what do I say next? <laughs> you should take a break. I mean, you can't do that all the time, right? But if you get into really difficult situation, also just to have that natural reflex, they're like, okay, wait, I need a strategic moment here. And people do that. People, whatever, they pretend to take some kind of important business call that just cannot be avoided or other things like that. But that means you have to be kind of cold-blooded, really in an analytic position and to try to overcome your own emotions. If I now put myself in the shoes of a green tech entrepreneur or a sustainability mm -hmm. activist and I want my interlocutor to change something, to change a behavior, mm -hmm. to do what I would estimate to be the right thing, that mm -hmm. is part of my identity. That is part of what I'm fighting every day about. So I could imagine it being hard to really go down to my analytic brain and to think, let's try to understand that other person to have compassion. I hear what you explain. It makes a lot of sense, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's hard to commence to my emotions. So this is also another really interesting point, okay? Because, sorry, but we're going back to the behavioral physiology stuff. <laughs> There's a huge misunderstanding about what emotions are. First of all, most people have this dichotomy in their head, right? They say, okay, there's logic on the one side and then there's emotions on the other side. You know, like you said, analytic brain and the emotional brain. And these two are opponents. Right brain, left brain. If something I want to like trigger that, everybody right? by saying something stupid, I can say that. And honestly, it's just not true. There's no logical thinking that's independent of emotion. Even logical thinking is driven by emotion. Emotions are like the high-speed decision makers that help us figure out where to go what to move towards, who to interact with, what to avoid, all that kind of stuff. So emotions are really smart and emotions are not the antagonist. Emotions aren't like the bad component of your behavior in a negotiation. They can be really helpful. So the question isn't overcoming your emotions. The question is how to replace negative and angry or fearful emotions with positive ones. And that's also something you can train. There's things like compassion training or there's things like rebalancing. Actually, the rebalancing takes me to another part of a misunderstanding about emotions that we have. 
let's say I call you a complete whatever, right? Something really horrible. And you go, and you experience an emotion. What's that emotion? Anger. Okay. So let's say you experience anger. And then when you experience anger, maybe something happens physically too, right? I guess I'm frowning, I'm getting red. And anything else in your posture maybe or... I'm getting more aggressive probably. Something in your posture, right, changes. The thing is, it's different for everybody, right? Some people, their head moves forward or some people scrunch their shoulders. Some people puff out their chest. Whatever it is, there's a physical change. And now we think, because maybe that's the way we were raised or something like that, that first we experience the emotion of anger, and then something changes in our physiology, in our body. But actually, it's the other way around. And it happens so fast that you can't really tell which way around it is. But if you ask brain researchers, it's the other way around. The first thing that's happening is that your shoulders or your something around the back of your neck tightens up and you frown and your heartbeat might increase, your pulse rate. And then there's this part of your brain called the anterior insular cortex, which is looking at all that information of what's happening inside your body, muscle tension, blood pressure, etc. And it's taking that information and it's sending it to another part of the brain that says, aha, these changes in posture, blood pressure, etc. equal anger. I'm going to tell this person to now consciously experience anger. So the physical change comes first and then the emotion. That's the reality, which brings us to the point of you're in a negotiation, right? And somebody says something that really gets your goat, like whatever, climate change is a hoax or something like that. What's the first thing you should do? Try to control your anger or try to kind of rationalize away your anger or try to tell him about this. There was a school of thought for a long time that says, you know, you've really upset me because blah, 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 and I'm so angry. No, you need a really quick solution. You need a solution that will fix the problem in half a second. You know what that solution is? Is rebalancing your body. Because let's say anger makes your neck go forward, the muscles around your shoulders tighten up, and let's say your pulse rate go up. Now, you can't do that much about your pulse rate. Maybe through some breathing techniques, you can work on that. But you can definitely control the tension in your big skeletal muscles. You can also control your posture. Now, the magical thing is, and it's so easy, it's almost stupid. The magical thing is that the moment you reset your posture and you relax your big skeletal muscles, which got tense, and you slow down your breathing, that moment, the anterior insular cortex, which is looking at all that information, is looking at your physical being and saying, what happened? Wait, I have to tell this guy he's not angry anymore. This is a simplification, right? You have to train it. There's a lot of impulses going this way and that way. There's continuous amounts of triggers happening from your counterpart. So it's a simplification. I admit that. But in this simplified way of looking at it, if you can rebalance your physical state, your posture, your muscular tension, your breathing, you can change your attitude towards your counterpart, and you can overcome the sense of aggression that you might have, or even the sense of disgust you might have, which will kill your negotiation. To me, that's magical. That's part of what I call compassionate conflict training. That's really my way of thinking about how to resolve conflict and also how to deal with difficult negotiation counterparts. So now we have two ways to start or two first steps, which you just put in our to-do list, a roadmap towards getting a better negotiator, which is this compassion training and this rebalancing mm. of the body. You know, everything in life goes better with three. So would you have a third one? Yeah. And this is more on the cognitive level. I think you need to be really clear on your final strategic goals and you need to have a 
well laid out plan that you keep refocusing during the negotiation, always with questioning techniques and other cognitive techniques, keep refocusing on your strategy. Never lose sight of your strategy. There's that difference between tactic and strategy. Be tactically flexible and strategically unwavering. In your ebook, I picked up this 15 minutes a day. Is it like the benchmark of how much you should invest in training the strategies, not tactics? Or mm -hmm. is it more or less? What would be a good benchmark? It really depends on what skills you already have. For example, some people have all the skills in terms of strategy, all the cognitive stuff, and then they don't need to train that. And it depends on what kinds of hurdles or problems you're facing, what you're good at and what you're not good at. So It's very individual, but I would say that within a time frame of about six weeks, even if you've got no experience at all in negotiating, you, you need a mixture, right? You need some on-block learning, which is about the theory and some role-playing and training, but you also need those little nudges every day, but you don't need two hours every day. So I'd say ideally, if you've got two hours twice a week, plus five minutes every morning, you can make major changes in Six weeks. And how do you support those people on their road to getting better negotiators? Is it through coaching? Is it through training, written mm -hmm. form, oral form, face-to-face, -face, online? What's your approach? Before Corona, I used to work mainly with small groups of people in a room, not online or anything like that. And Corona came along and it kind of naturally switched to online, which you can have group sessions with up to 25 people online. I wouldn't suggest that because negotiating is so personal that you're probably better off with a group of less than 10 people if it's online. It's got to be interactive. You can't learn negotiating from a book and you can't learn it from uh, reading a whole bunch of PDFs and stuff like that. It's got to be interactive. You also have to be put into those situations where you can sense the pressure. I think that's a large component. I also developed a format which I call embed, which is to give you those small nudges on a daily basis. That's a really important component of how I train. And so basically, when people join my course, they get a daily three-minute audio. Some of them are only two minutes, roughly three minutes, maybe. And they get that daily audio file, which is just you know some stories, some insights, and a nudge to do one tiny little thing differently that day. And if you've got that going on every day for six weeks, you know that's like major change in reflexes, habits, etc. If at that depth of the conversation we're having today, we have decision makers in the water industry which are listening to that, would you advise them to reach out to you or to go into that field on an individual basis? Or is it the kind of stuff which companies should enlist their people on too? Because that's part of the soft skills which will be needed in this climate change adaptation phase we're facing right now. This is one of the questions that I'm asking myself too, right, is how do I increase the impact of what I'm doing? And there are a lot of people who are doing similar things to what I do. It's not really directly about negotiating, but it's also about making change happen. So there's a whole bunch of good change facilitators, I'd say. And I think depending on the size of the corporation, and if a large corporation says we want to send 200 people to some training, then they probably need to find somebody who's got a little bit more capacity than I have. Or they can start with an automated course that people can take. That's an option too. I like having mixed groups of people, like somebody who's, let's say, a policy officer at the EU level, plus somebody who's selling infrastructure for electric vehicles, maybe even an activist, right, thrown into the mix. <laughs> 
And I've trained all these kinds of people. And what I see as interesting is when you put them together, they create very fascinating role-playing scenarios. And there's a lot of opening of minds going on. Well, I think that makes for a good summary for this deep dive. <laughs> I've mentioned your, your ebook a, a couple of times in our discussion. Of mm -hmm. course, the links are in the description. So I enjoyed mm -hmm. reading it. I guess that would be the case for anyone downloading that. So just my very humble personal feedback. I, I liked it. So I guess I would mm -hmm. recommend anyone to, to, to have a read and reading something is never a commitment to much more than reading it. So it's already pretty interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. Ben, if that's right with you, I'm always running out of those conversations with a list of rapid fire questions. And I propose mm -hmm. you to switch to that last section. Absolutely. Yeah. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So here the rule is pretty simple. I try to keep the questions short and you have to try to keep the answers short. I'm never cutting the microphone and usually I'm the one side tracking. So don't worry. My first mm -hmm. question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Oh my God. Okay. This is a rapid fire question. I have yes. to say <laughs> a, an international collaboration to retrain farmers in Colombia. And what many people don't know, the good news about Colombia is that they just ended a 15-year civil war and they could become one of the breadbaskets of the world. So, you know, what do they need to make this happen? Well, they got to retrain 5.5 million farmers who used to grow coca, right, for making cocaine, and who now need to be retrained to grow veggies, fruits, all that kind of stuff. Hope that was short enough. The temptation to go on a sidetrack here is very strong, but I have to resist. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Negotiating. Oh, here yeah, I need to know more. How did you <laughs> learn in the, the hard way? I don't have a natural talent for it at all. I came with all the bad reflexes and I had to train all of them out of myself. Which usually makes for good teachers. If I go back to my engineering times, engineering school times, Usually the ones which were very good at maths were terrible teachers just because to them it was too easy. And the one which had struggled with the maths themselves ended up being very much better teachers. So my two cents. Thanks. <laughs> Is there something you are doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Online marketing. <laughs> oh my God, it's not my thing. <laughs> and still, you're a brilliant copywriter. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's content creation for me, you know. That's, maybe it's part of online marketing. But yeah, I'll be glad when I've, you know, kind of resettled into this new sector, right? Because as you know, I started off in a completely different sector and I come to just switched a year ago. So I'm all new to this and I have to kind of still create a presence. We have this big UN water conference coming up in 2023. And we struggled as an industry, probably because of lack of negotiation skills, to put a lot of topics on the agenda. But still, if you had the chance to put one topic on that UN Water Conference agenda, which is the first in 50 years, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Could I ask you what you would put on? Because like I said, I'm not a water person, right? But I'd be fascinated to hear what you would put on if it was up to you. <laughs> Clever comeback. I would have a hard time putting just one. When you're involved with it, when you have to overcome your emotions, and I'm not overcoming mm -hmm. to relax my body and to be... <laughs> I'm going to have to pay attention to that whole topic more because I think it's a really tough one and a fascinating one. It's a matter of patterns. We have one pattern in our modern world, which is to open the tap and have water and to flush the toilet and see water disappear. And so we don't mm -hmm. look beyond those patterns. And still, there's a fascinating reality beyond those patterns. But I have to fight my tendencies to sidetrack and let me bring you back with my <laughs> last question, which is, yeah. would you have someone to recommend me that should definitely invite as soon as possible on that microphone? Yes, absolutely. I'm training or coaching a startup 
which is revolutionizing water filtration. And they're called Avalor. And the two founders, Ian and Arian, they're amazing guys. I'm not the expert to say this, right? But from what I understand, from what people around them are saying, they have breakthrough technology on the cusp of mainstream media implementation. So I think they would be really amazing to talk to. Well, thanks a lot for the recommendation. And I can confirm, Bern, that I had a really good time over that hour with you. And I think we learned some very interesting insights into an overlooked part of the interaction we have with stakeholders. Fight is probably not the right word, but in this adaptation we have to the new challenges our world is facing. So so thanks a lot. I mentioned mm -hmm. how the link to your ebook is already in the show notes. If people want to follow up with you and to contact you directly, what's the best way to speak with you? Just write me an email at ben at negotiating hyphen with hyphen goliath.com. And that one is as well now in the show notes. Well Ben, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot and talk to you soon. Thank you too. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.